Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of AM Live on Colin. It's really great to be here with you. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Okay. I saw a fire emoji, so thank you for that. <laughs> Hope everyone's doing good. There's a lot to talk about the uh, growing war fever in Washington is coming up against a lot of obstacles, including from Ukraine itself. It's, it's tough to try to manufacture fear about an invasion of Ukraine if Ukraine itself is not willing to go along. So we will talk about all of this and um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. And anything else, any other topic going on this week that you want to discuss? Joining me today, I have two guests coming back to the show. They are two friends of mine, two amazing musicians from the band Wolf Parade and their own projects. Dan Bachner is here. He uh, is the lead singer and guitar, or the, the co-lead singer, I should say, uh, for Wolf Parade, and also his band Operators. And Arlen Thompson is here. He's also in Wolf Parade. He's the drummer for Wolf Parade and has, has his own project as well, which I just checked out, which I love, called Anunnaki. And as fellow Canadians, they are equally as disturbed as I am about our government's just amazing subservience, not only to U.S. chauvinism and jingoism, but this weird alliance between people in the Canadian government and the current Ukrainian government and their unflinching support for that and their complete disinterest in any kind of serious diplomacy. And uh, we'll get into that as well. So Dan and Arlen, let me welcome you into the show. How are you guys doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm currently in New Orleans right now, uh, getting set up, doing some rehearsals. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for having us on, man. Thank you. Well, hey, there you uh, go. thanks for taking... Sorry, it took me a while to figure out how to mute. Yeah, Same. well, that's a good, that's a good uh, reminder for everybody. When you come in on the call today, remember to unmute yourself. Uh, you can do that by pressing the microphone icon in the bottom right. So, look, there's so much to talk about. I guess uh, where I want to start is with the like really inconvenient discord between Washington and the country it's supposedly defending, which is Ukraine, because now it's coming out into the open where basically Ukraine is not on board, as far as I can tell, at least, with the drumbeat of war coming from Washington. These claims from the Biden administration that there's this imminent invasion of Russia coming. Ukraine, the President Zelensky just keeps saying, no, stop creating panic. We're not freaked out like you guys are. And you, uh, and you seem to be doing it for domestic reasons. And uh, Dan, if that's you, you want to, if you have noise behind you, you want to meet yourself just while it's, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, passing, I'm, out of the, yeah. I'm out of the noise zone. I'm out of the okay, hot okay, okay. zone, as it okay, were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you guys think? I mean, what, like... And remember that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, came in where he ran as this kind of peace candidate. He was going to finally implement the Minsk II Accords, and he was actually going to end the war in the Donbass. But since he's coming to office, he's basically towed Washington's line. I'm wondering if the fact that he's now making such a clear departure from the Biden administration. By the way, to the point where CNN had to like delete a story the other day where someone from yeah. Ukraine leaked a story that basically Biden was being to bellicose for Zelensky and Zelensky was telling him to like calm it down. And then, so CNN reported that, but then of course the Biden administration called them and were mad at them for interfering with the party lines. 
they slapped, slapped it, down. it down. Like, <laughs> I mean, I could I could just start by saying, so I've been following this since uh, since the buildup in October, and the last time I was on, uh, we talked about some of the some of the roots of this current military buildup uh, around uh, the two breakaway republics around Donbass and and, and Lukonsk. Uh, a lot of it spurred on by the Ukrainian military's use of uh, NATO weapons, so weapons supplied by the, uh, the Trump administration, uh, that's Javelin rockets and Turkish Bayraktar drones, right? So, so that's, you know, that's the background. I've been following this, watching it sort of unravel, and then on my podcast I've had uh, Peter Kolotayev, who is a Ukrainian journalist, he lives in Kiev, We've had him on twice in the last two weeks. And even as early as two or three weeks ago, he was already talking about the domestic messaging about this quote-unquote imminent invasion is completely at odds with uh, what we hear in the West. So I kind of figured it was only a matter of time before this bubbled up because you know, one of the first things Peter told me was that these invasion, uh, this invasion narrative has absolutely fucking tanked the Ukrainian uh, currency. Yeah, that's a big issue right now. And also, there so um, it's caused the 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 uh, insurance that Ukrainian businesses need to get to borrow money from European banks. Now they can't get any insurance, so their economy is like in free fall. Like, and there's even a a, a worry that they could end up defaulting on their debts because of this. Of course, you know, what bank is going to lend to a country that is going to be imminently invaded by Russia? So, And, and this this impact on the economy and just the overall well-being of the country also, I mean, there's been a huge exodus of people from Ukraine since 2014. And, and this always, and this I, always I, happens with the want U.S. To say, yeah, go ahead. To you. Dan, so you cut out there for a second. So we missed what you said. So when you come back, you just want to restart what you said when you when you can join us again. I, I see you're on mute. What I was going to say is just like this thing about the impact of, of basically Washington has been using Ukrainians as bullet stoppers in their proxy war with Russia. And this this goes back to I mean many, many years, but just the most recent period, really, when the war started in 2014, the lead up to it, it basically was the U.S. and its allies telling Ukraine to make a choice between the West and Russia. That's how I see it, at least. And I write about this a bit in my latest article that I published this week called The Ukraine Crisis Sponsored by U.S. Hegemony and War Profiteers. And basically, you had um, the president at the time, Yanukovych, he signed this agreement with the, uh, or he was going to sign this agreement with the European Union, a trade association agreement. Um, and that was after a heavy, heavy lobbying campaign from the U.S. and its allies. And basically, the agreement would have done a few things. First of all, it would have basically forced Ukraine to seriously scale back its economic and cultural ties with its neighbor, Russia, right? And for a part of Ukraine, that's a desirable outcome because there's a part of Ukraine that hates Russia. But for a large part of you, another uh, a major part of Ukraine, that's like the exact opposite of what they want because they have such deep historical family and cultural ties to Russia. So the U.S. was forcing Ukraine to make this choice, and they were doing so also while imposing harsh austerity demanded by the IMF, so demanding a cut to pensions and a cut to energy subsidies. So when uh, Yanukovych, the president at the time, realizes this, you know, he starts to panic, and Putin comes in, takes advantage, offers him a more generous package of something like $15 billion in aid, and actually 
some increased energy subsidies. So then he goes and he signs that. And that's when you have the Maidan coup, the U.S. ramping up support for these protests in Kiev. And there was an element of that that was genuinely against corruption in Yanukovych's government. But another major component was this harsh ultra-nationalism that doesn't want anything to do with Russia and wants to promote this idea of this, you know, Western-aligned Ukraine and, you know, where Russian identity and ties are not even allowed. And that's basically what sets off the spiral to to today. And, and you see it now with the impact as we're talking about, the impact on the economy. It's like this is what happens when the West forces people to make choices. The people of the country suffer the price simply because, like, it's for the price of admission in the U.S. club. Yeah, well, and I mean, the fact is that Russia is Ukraine's number one trading partner. Um, and that's just by the geographical nature that it shares a border with Russia. It, it, you know, has a, a large Russian, uh, you know, ethnically Russian and Russian speaking population. Like, and I think this goes back to, uh, you know, kind of the formation of the modern state of Ukraine after the Soviet Union fell, where Ukraine has been kind of like a neoliberal project from the get go. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's been uh you know used as like a test bed of these neoliberal ideas of uh of you know kind of a po- what a post soviet state could be and it's been kind of a massive failure and you know we see it you know they had the same kind of issues with uh the orange revolution and they they seem to you know as a country uh this kind of pull between east you know East and West, um, and, and these, uh, this kind of neoliberal, um, kind of position of, of Europe, Europeanizing Ukraine and trying to pull it away from Russia. But it, it just doesn't really meet the reality that Ukraine is always going to be have ties to Russia because it's right next to Russia. It's, it, you know, this idea that you can make this firewall, this almost neoliberal firewall, uh, between Ukraine and Russia is 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 kind of ridiculous, and you can see, like you know, after 2014, the the uh, living standards of Ukrainians have has fallen dramatically. Wages have fallen dramatically. Um, young people, uh, you know, are leaving Ukraine in droves to go work uh, in in Poland and in Europe, as as Dan's guest Peter said. Um, so it's been a disaster, um, but it keeps getting repeated because you know. This project was, you know, started by, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of diaspora groups in Canada and in, in United States, and they want to see this through. But it, it it it's been a disaster, and nobody kind of wants to acknowledge that that um, the issues with Ukraine is is as much an issue between the West and and United States and Europe and Ukraine as it is Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, it, it reminds I mean, me so much of Syria. Sorry, Dan, go ahead. Oh, can you guys hear me now? Uh, yeah. Am I in? Okay. Uh, just to Arlen's point, I have a good compare, kind of a like human interest compare and contrast example of uh, post Maidan Ukraine, like in terms of in terms of economics and and what it's like for people living there and working there, and that's essentially Peter uh, compared. Sergei Leschenko, who is the uh, current advisor to the railway ministry, to uh, basically a union boss and a longtime railway worker who uh, lives in Odessa. So this railway worker that he interviewed, he saw his wages cut by two thirds. He has barely any work. 
And his job is becoming redundant because uh, rail lines and trade to Russia and Belarus are uh, being disrupted by this political flow, you know? On the other hand, uh, Leschenko is a Stanford-educated uh, product of, like, all this NGO money flowing into the, into the country. Uh, got his position and immediately got wrapped up in a corruption scandal involving... Uh, appropriated state funds used to buy an apartment for him and his DJ girlfriend. He makes 20,000 euros a month. Oh. Uh, a- average living wage there is now 290 US dollars a month, I believe. So oh. he's making 20,000 euros a month, and he gets interviewed on national Ukrainian television before all this pops off. And someone asks him what the gauge of Ukrainian railway is, you know? And he's, mm-hmm. he's like, why are you asking me this? I don't know. So that's it. I mean, I feel like that kind of sums up the economic and political reality internally there. By the way, you know, side note, there is so much shadiness around Stanford when it comes to these regime change targets around the world, especially in Europe. Like Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador who's every day campaigning for war against Russia while claiming he's for peace. He's at Stanford and uh, Bellingcat, you know, that NATO troll farm that I spent a lot of time writing about that does, you know, basically information operations on behalf of every, you know, US, UK regime change operation. Uh, they have a Stanford tie. There's, you could do a whole thing about just the shameless around Stanford when it comes to these like spook, you know, um, projects around the world. I think Cond- uh, Condoleezza yeah. Rice too, isn't she? Cond- Cond- Condi's there. I mean, uh, yeah. there's just, you know, there's so much shittiness there, but you know, in terms of hardship for average people, I wanted to read you guys this uh, from this new article in the New York Times and get your response. And then we're going to go to some calls. Um, so it's called and this is basically like this is like like Mark Ames said this on Twitter. This is like basically porn for the Acela crowd, the like D.C. New York corridor crowd. And uh, the article is called U.S. sanctions aimed at Russia could take a wide toll. And uh, they um, they write this. The, and they're talking about the prospect of the U.S. imposing these, uh, you know, unprecedented harsh sanctions on Russia, even harsher than than they have already. And because already they say U.S. sanctions have probably caused the Russian economy to decline by about three percent. But they're saying, you know, if these new sanctions come in, it could cause even more. So they write this. Uh, Washington is looking to take a sledgehammer to pillars of Russia's financial system. The new sanctions that American officials are preparing would cut off foreign lending, sales of sovereign bonds, technologies for critical industries, and the assets of elite citizens close to Vladimir Putin. But the real damage to Russia's $1.5 trillion economy would come from hitting the biggest state banks, as well as the government's Russian Direct Investment Fund, which has prominent Western executives on its advisory board. The Treasury Department would draw from its experience targeting Iranian banks under President Trump though Iran's banks are much smaller and less integrated into the global economy than Russian banks. And um, down below, they notice they note that there's, you know, some broader impacts on this when it comes to um, average Russians. And they say this, let me just find it. For an average Russian, the harshest U.S. measures could mean higher prices for food and clothing, or more dramatically, they could cause pensions and savings accounts to be severely devalued by a crash in the ruble or Russian markets. And they quote, um, you know, for expertise on this, a guy named Edward Fishman, who served as the top official 
for Russia and Europe in the State Department's Office of Economic Sanctions Policy during the Obama administration. So but this guy basically helped design sanctions on Russia that were imposed under Obama. And he says this. This is what Ed, Edward Fishman says. If the Biden administration follows through on its threat to sanction major Russian banks, that will reverberate across the entire Russian economy. It will definitely affect everyday Russians. Now, you think from that statement, he says it will affect everyday Russians, that he's being critical and he's warning against it. But listen to what else he says. Mr. Fishman added, how are you going to change Putin's calculus by creating domestic disturbances? People will be unhappy. Look, what you did, all of a sudden, my bank account is a fraction of what it was. Thanks, Putin. So this guy supports that. And I love the word, the, the, like the term he comes <laughs> up with. It's a domestic disturbance to cause yeah. higher food prices, higher clothing prices, and a crash people's savings account. This is just so baby brain. I think, too, that, that one of the, the sanctions that people were bragging about was that you wouldn't be able to get iPhones in, in Russia. Yes, yeah, I like, love that one. It's yeah. just, uh, you know, and, and it just, you know, doesn't get talked about how you know, Russia is a major supplier of, of natural gas to Europe, basically the main supplier. And only that, that Russia is a major supplier now of oil, heavy oil to the United States. It basically replaced Venezuela for the heavy oil that helps run uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the gas, you know, gas refineries. So, it, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, like what these people are thinking. So they cut off all the Russian banks and completely disrupt, you know, uh, you know, energy in Europe, uh, energy in the United States. Like it, it's, it's just very bizarre. Like, yeah, I mean, I, there's a reason why, uh, Germany is blocking arms transport, right? Like, yeah. I, I, it's been funny to watch Germany become, uh, or watch American and Canadian press try and turn Germany into what France was for the Gulf war, you know? But uh, it's winter, and they rely on Russian gas, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> and they and they can't believe there was an article this week in the, in the New York Times about like questioning where Germany's loyalties lie, because Germany has the temerity to question U.S. war plans and to like basically cut off its largest energy supplier. And so now it's like, I guess what it is for me is I never cease to marvel at just the hubris and the sadism of that's completely normalized in the bipartisan U.S. foreign policy establishment and across all media, where it's just taken for granted that while we, you know, simultaneously claim that we're all about defending principles and protecting sovereignty and freedom and democracy, it's presumed, it's not even questioned, that we have the right to destroy people's economies and hurt average people, raise their food prices, raise their clothing prices, destroy their savings accounts. That's just taken as like an inherent right that we have, we can do anywhere, whether it's in Russia or in Venezuela. Um, Anya Parnpel at the Gray Zone, my colleague, just had a great interview with a, a, a Venezuelan opposition economist who just talked about how basically the impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela is no different, in fact, in worse in some ways than a conventional war. That it's just been, it's, it's, it's created war-like conditions in Venezuela because of the economic siege that the U.S. has imposed. And it's totally presumed to be normal and fair. The only question is, will it work? And that's even what this New York Times article says. It says, um, it's like uh, the only, the only, the only sort of possible skepticism they, they, they float is, is this. They say, from Cuba to North Korea to Iran, U.S. sanctions have a mixed record at best of forcing a change in behavior. 
That's the furthest you can go in questioning the policy is whether it works or not in changing the behavior, a.k.a. in violating the sovereignty of the governments and countries you're targeting and trying to crush their will because you, they stand in the way of U.S. hegemony. Yeah, I mean, I think sanctions are a complete failure, but it's one of these political maneuvers that can be done and almost done more so for American and Canadian domestic politics to, you know, do these sanctions. It's almost like the, 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 uh, the means that you can attack a country that makes liberals feel good. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it's seen, it's, it's presented as having, you know, no consequences. Um, even though, you know, there's that, uh, was it that famous quote from, uh, Madeleine Albright, when she got questioned on all the, the, you know, 500,000 deaths of children from the, uh, Iraqi sanctions in the, in the nineties. And, you know, she basically said, yeah, it was worth it. You know, like the price is worth it. Right. The price is worth yeah. it, you know? And so, yeah. You know, it, it's really it's it's kind of like the acceptable savagery um, that our liberal democracies um, allow. You know, uh, instead of you know carpet bombing um, <laughs> a nation, we'll we'll starve them to death. Um, and it's so yeah. weird to see that this, this gets jumped on. You know, even you know, say in Canada, the NDP, all these people that would, you know. Um, you know, fly uh, Black Lives Matter flags. Um, we'll turn around and, and put like the harshest sanctions on the citizens of, of Venezuela or the citizens of Syria or or whatever without a second thought. Well, I, wa- the- I wanted to I wanted to bring that up the the sort of unholy like with this uh, Ukraine crisis, the unholy alliance between uh, Aaron and Arlen. What you guys were saying, you know, this sort of ghoulish State Department. Uh, stuff that is sometimes just played for a domestic audience, right? Because like you said, sanctions are easy. So this unholy alliance between that propaganda block and then in Canada, we are basically directing the Galician, like Western Ukrainian diaspora's uh, ideology. We we are leading the pack. Like Arlen mentioned NDP support and a couple, I guess it was last week, you see all these NDP MPs holding up signs saying, I stand with Ukraine, hashtag stand with Ukraine. <laughs> and so I, I saw that and immediately was like, oh, this is uh, this is something put together by the uh, UCC, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, who are the biggest representatives of this like Banderite faction of Western Ukrainians. They, you know, they're just briefly, they have their roots in we imported thousands of demobilized Ukrainian fascists uh, at the end of the Second World War in the in early 1950s who were used by our government to sort of chill the left-wing diaspora here who were mostly socialists, mostly workers, not all of hmm. them, but a lot of them. And it was troublesome. So the best way to, uh, you know, quell a, a socialist uprising in the prairies is to inject a bunch of uh, Nazis and literal Nazis, like these people are ex-Wehrmacht. A lot of them fought for the SS 14th Division. All that to say, the UCC is an outgrowth of that. And wouldn't you know it, the UCC was behind the I stand with Ukraine hashtag. You know, the, the World Ukrainian Federation is run by uh, one of their former presidents, Paul Grodd, another Canadian. So Canada is really punching above its weight here, you know, in terms of... Uh, messaging to the public and i think i think it sort of reached its peak 
with Rosemary Barton on the CBC having deposed President Petro Poroshenko on to explain Ukraine to Canadians. This is a guy who is facing high treason charges. Uh, you know, this is a guy that like Zelensky's government is trying to put in jail. And this is a guy that our national broadcaster feels we should uh, is the best person to explain Ukraine to Canadians. It's insane. So, yeah. Well, just to, uh, to you know, to expand on that and, uh, and to go back to my point earlier about Ukraine being kind of this this post-Soviet uh, neoliberal project. I just want to read this uh, quote from Michael Ignatiev's book, Blood and Belonging, which came out in 1995. Hey, Michael Ignatius, to explain who he is, he's a former Canadian minister, very influential intellectual. Yeah, he's a big intellectual. He ran. He was um, leader of the Liberal Party um, for a hot minute, I think. Um, And, uh, you know, I think he he taught at Harvard or something. He comes from this... um, He he was a prominent kind of... uh, we call liberal interventionist. I think he was, you know, pro. Very pro rock. Very very pro rock war. Oh yeah. So, anyways, he wrote this book on on kind of uh, the rise of nationalism uh, in the mid nineties, and uh, he's got a quote here from Christian Freeland, who is the Canadian uh, Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister and former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. So here's a quote uh, talking about Canadians and Ukrainians. Uh, It is common, she says, for Canadian Ukrainians to think of themselves as the true Ukrainians, the ones who kept the faith while among the actual Ukrainians, the compulsion and fatalism of the communist system was working its way into their bones. Mm -hmm. Ukrainian Canadians return home expecting a fervently nationalist and religious people and find instead a phlegmatic, ironic, sober and fatalistic Soviet souls. Independence requires a new human type, but she Uh. says... With an equal measure of affection and irritation, it'll be a long time coming. Oh. So, so, you know, this not is... the real Ukrainians. The Ukrainians living in Ukraine are fake Ukrainians. It's the oh. it's the grandchildren of the Nazis <laughs> who fought the fucking Red Army and knew, and bravely fled to Canada, who've been keeping the the faith alive. Like it doesn't get any more clear than that. So yeah. I, I mean, just the term that independence requires a new human type is like just an utterly bizarre statement, you know, like, so really like, you know, you put in this context that, that there's been this move by the West to, you know, transform not just Ukraine, but Ukrainians themselves into this kind of new neoliberal kind of being, um, Mm. So, you know, and to bring it back uh, more, you know, so much of the discussion is on this idea of sovereignty. So we must guarantee Ukrainian sovereignty. You know, this is why, um, you know, the, the Minsk agreements, as, as Russia has interpreted them and, and, and wants to impose, um, is unacceptable. Um, but when you really think about it, you know, the sovereignty they're talking about is, is the sovereignty where, uh, you know, Ukraine is, is, a NATO state, so it's basically it's its military is subsumed to to NATO, um, and you know uh, I was reading um, this, uh, this uh, paper on the Minsk agreements by uh, Duncan Allen from the uh, Chatham House, and he was talking about how you know the ideal ideal situation is you know they want to impose you know more IMF structural reforms that there's a package 
mm-hmm. to an already a country that is, you know, is de- devastated. And then they want to, uh, as he put it, um, rebuilding Ukrainian state from scratch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not only that wants to come in and completely, <laughs> you know, this idea that the West is going to do this. Like, uh, as far as I know, the, you know, the West has had a pretty bad track record of rebuilding the state of, of countries, you know, like we've seen oh, yeah. massive failure in, you know, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, so this idea destroy, that they can, the West destroys these countries, they yeah. destroy them. Yeah. 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 So there's, I mean, in some way, you know, I said, I, I was re- replying to uh, uh, a Twitter comment by Yash Levine that, you know, the, 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 this kind of um, imminent uh, uh, war narrative you know the fact that it's destroying Ukraine. In, in my opinion, it, it, it's almost benef- It's almost what some people in America want. Like, the, yes, they, they want Ukrainians to be punished in in a, a weird way, and they want to see this um, form of Ukraine uh, collapse. And it really is a way to delay the only solution, which is the one you mentioned, which is the Minsk Accords. Right, that's been in place since 2015. Everybody knows that. That's the only way to go. And obviously, there's a faction in Washington that doesn't want to implement them because the Minsk Accords would basically they would demilitarize the Donbass region, which is fighting the Ukrainian government. But in return for that, yes, the Donbass would get a, uh, some some autonomy. And that gives them basically a veto over Ukraine joining NATO. They would ensure it would never happen. Now, everyone in Washington knows Ukraine is not going to join NATO anyway because it's too, you know, it's too divided. It's too corrupt. Um, for example, that, that like what you mentioned about Poroshenko, the former the former prime minister, he's facing you know serious charges, and there's a major internal split even inside the ruling you know pro Western government right now. So the country's in, in shambles, and and Biden, they all admit that Ukraine's not going to join NATO anyway. But it's like there's just such a hostility towards the idea that Russia could gain uh, what it wants. <laughs> Yeah, um, just that, that they just even though they even though they agree that it's going to be the reality anyway, that they don't want to uh, allow that, and so that's why it, this you know this is presented as some kind of intractable conflict, and there's a threat of an invasion. All it is, it's being done to manufacture uh, some crisis that can delay or or undermine the implementation of Minsk, which is the only way uh, to have a long lasting solution that you know that 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 yeah. is a compromise for everybody. Again, it would mean that Donbass is demilitarized, which is exactly what the Ukrainian government says it wants. And the only obstacle to that is that basically Washington has told Ukraine not to implement it. Yeah, I mean, just as uh, just to your your and Arlen's point about like internal discord in in Ukraine uh, being maybe the bigger problem, not the imminent threat of invasion. One thing that didn't really get reported on that happened in the last few days. I think it was four or five days ago. There was a massive protest in Kiev about a new law requiring small, quote unquote, small business owners to pay taxes. And the reason this law is in place is because Ukraine is in deep with these IMF loans. And the only way they're going to pay them back is if people shift away from kind of a gray market economy Mm. uh, to actually fucking paying taxes. So, you know they're they're bringing down the hammer and there's a there's a protest a riot and someone died right like someone was murdered by the police during this hmm. so in in any other country that that would be that would be huge but it's sort of overshadowed by this like like you're saying Aaron like this this manufactured like war fever you know so there's that and then you know but to do with the Minsk Accords like 
one of one of the main sticking points for a very small but influential group of uh, people in Ukraine, which is Ukrainian veterans. One of the sticking points is amnesty. Those they they the Minsk Accords call for amnesty for combatants on both sides, and these veteran groups, like you know, civil war has been running since 2014, and for a lot of these guys, this is this is their job now, and they do not want amnesty for the other side. <laughs> no. No, and they and they will no. resist it as much as possible. They become a these veterans groups have become a huge problem for the Zelensky government because they have combat experience. They're mostly hardline nationalists, and they're extremely hard to control. So, yeah, it reminds me so much of Syria in so many different ways. The the U.S. finds a side that can support an attempt to basically destroy the country and in return, they get the promise of being put in power. Sim- similar with, you know, Ahmed Chalabi in Iraq. And uh, that's who, that's who gets held up as like the model citizen, the model country men, c- country person. And the, the result is just, um, it's just chaos and it's, and it's suffering for everybody. Let's take some calls. Andrew, you are up. And a reminder when you come in to unmute yourself by hitting the icon in the bottom, right? Hello, are you able to hear me? Yes. Hi, so I just had a couple quick thoughts and questions. Um, First thought is that if a country can't be independent without another military, it's not an independent country. So I don't know why there's this idea that we have to protect them because they're a democracy. And, you know, we (laughs) we don't go around protecting democracies. Anyone that pays attention in America understands that. Um, the second thing, uh, I kind of think there might be a better chance than not that Russia does invade to some degree, just based on things I've heard outside of the propaganda from the government. And I wonder if that is the case, what do you both or all think that would look like? Because I don't think they would necessarily go to Kiev. And I wonder, you say it does remind you of Syria. Would it be a balkanization of Ukraine like has happened to Syria? Because... Uh, there's some natural borders, the rivers that make for good stopping points. I just kind of wonder what you think would be the point of an invasion or the goal if it did happen. And then lastly, if there is no invasion, what do you think will be the long-term plan here for Russia going forward in handling uh, Ukraine and NATO? It uh, doesn't seem like they have many great options. Thanks, Andrew. Oh, well, I'm not a military, you know, guy or i'm and i'm also not an expert on russia so i don't but but i'll just say for what it's worth i don't it, like an invasion makes no sense to me they're already able to support their allies in the donbass with uh you know relatively light arms and i think the only way they possibly go in is if ukraine escalates its attacks on the donbass but i feel like from what i understand russia could have a way to basically defend its its, its allies in the donbass without even entering so, and otherwise, it's like, you know, they, they've had the chance before to take the Donbass that they wanted. There was even a, a vote where people in Donbass wanted to join Russia, but Russia has, you know, Ru- Russia's declined. Russia's probably declined. So it's like, I don't think they want to take over even the parts of Ukraine that are totally in their camp. Crimea was a different story because Crimea was, you know, hosts uh, Russia's most important naval base. And the prospect yeah. of a coup government, you know, <laughs> giving that over to NATO was just that was intolerable. And that's why 
across the political spectrum in Russia, even people who hate Putin. I mean, everybody supports that decision. You can't even basically be a politician in Russia, no matter what side you're on, if you don't support the, um, the, the annexation of Crimea. So I don't I just don't see what what would be in it for Russia to do an invasion. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of with Aaron. Like, uh, just to add to that, you know, you've got you've got the Russian defense minister saying that they're, you know, basically saying that they're not going to invade. You have the uh, I believe he's the former minister of defense for Ukraine saying he doesn't think uh, Russia has the logistical and and material capability to invade. Um, and I think what they're talking about invasion, like capital I invasion, they mean like invade all the way to Kiev. But I agree with Aaron that if there is any kind of like military incursion, I think it's just from people I've talked to, it's probably going to be Russians moving military hardware into DPR, you know, like into Dantansk, into the Lukansk to to defend these places. Uh, Yeah. Um, And then I don't know. I mean... I don't know what their options are with NATO. Like a couple weeks ago, the United States started floating these articles that they were planning on doing a fucking insurgency in in Ukraine if Russia invades. And that, I'm sure, for Russians and Russian military is a terrifying thing to think about because there's no reason to think that the U.S. wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, also think of it this way. I mean, as much as a lot of noise has been made about Russia building up you know, its forces, uh, you know, really it's not that much on the border. Like, these are, are permanent military bases. Um, so it's not like Russia is, is like, fielding an army out in, you know, out in the battlefield, so to speak. So, you know, Russia can just basically be at this, this you know, standing forever because this is, you know, uh, this is really just their basic security posture. Um, so the idea that, you know, uh, you know, I'm no military expert either, but the amount of resources and uh, the, uh, you know, the troops you need and, and the rotate troop rotations and to keep morale high and stuff like when you're, you're fielding an army out, you know, in the middle of nowhere uh, is really high. And so the fact that Russia is, is, you know, keeping all its forces in their barracks, in their bases, um, they can do that forever because this is just, they're just basically running their normal, you know, basically security. So I don't, yeah, I can't see them like the, the risk of war for Russia is, is too high. Like they, you know, they don't want to take the casualties of a land invasion. I don't think anyone would. Um, so yeah. I, I just don't think it makes sense. Yeah. I, I think, I think for, for Russia it would be, you know, if like what I said before on, on last time I was on this program was, you know, what Russia doesn't want, they don't want a Yugoslavia situation. So they don't want to see uh, Ukraine uh, entering into Donbass and Luhansk and entering into this kind of ethnic cleansing um, chaos where Russia suddenly has to deal with, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of refugees showing up on its border and yep. the, the crisis that that would create. So I think yes. if Russia takes any sort of action... It'll be, you know, this kind of uh, quick strike to, you know, whatever strategic, you know, way they think to to stop basically like a Yugoslavia breaking out. 
Um, right. Remember, <laughs> remember the, the the threat of a Russian invasion didn't come from Russia. Russia hasn't threatened to invade. That fear mongering came from the U.S. It's the U.S. that has been alleging that Russia has never threatened to invade. Now, obviously, they have they're, they've had some increased movement on the on the border. They've sent more troops there, but um, the threat has never come from them. So, I just to me, it just seems like a panic created in Washington for their own purposes, either to, as I talked about, to delay or undermine the Minsk Accords, to try to get more leverage in sabotaging the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But the actual prospects of an invasion to me just don't seem there. And that's why, by the way, this is really funny. This happened the last week where basically, so you had the allegation from the U.S. that Russia is planning this invasion. Then last week, I think after that wasn't really sticking and even the people were pushing back on the prospects of that, then they came up with this new allegation. And the way they did it is so funny. So a week ago... The British government announced that they've uncovered a Russian plot to launch a coup in Kiev. So not with an invasion, but just some kind of coup plot and install a pro-Russian leader. And I mean, there are many ironies about that, because actually what, yeah. they're accusing, what they're accusing Russia of is, in fact, what the U.S. did in 2014. And let me actually play a clip um, of uh, just there was a leaked phone call between Victoria Nuland and the U.S. ambassador, Jeffrey Piet, at the time. I love it was this. Inter- it, it was intercepted so by good. Russia. It was intercepted by Russia. And on the call, this is 2014, they are basically deciding, and this is late January 2014, they're deciding how to basically undermine talks at resolving the Maidan uh, protest, the crisis, and they're deciding who to put in as the next Ukrainian prime minister. And they decided on a guy named Arseniy Yatsenyuk, and that is who ended up being the prime minister. So let me just play the clip, and hopefully you can hear it okay. Lots is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. I think Yatsenyuk... <laughs> so that's them plotting who to install as, as the Ukrainian prime minister and... <laughs> And then a few weeks later, a coup does break out. The actual elected president, Yanukovych, is forced to flee. And Yats, who Newland said, yeah. who is described as Yats is the guy, he does become the prime minister. So now they're accusing Russia of doing a similar thing. There's no evidence for it. And what's so funny is that, and this is just amazing. So the allegation uh, is rolled out by the British. And the British say that they are the ones who discovered this supposed Russian plot. And the U.S., also says that it was the Brits who discovered it. Um, and uh, let me just read to you how it goes. So basically, um, the uh, so this is for okay. Yeah, so headline from the Times last week. It says Brit Britain says Moscow was plotting to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it goes on to say in Washington, officials said they believe the British intelligence is correct. Two officials said. It had been collected by British intelligence services. So the story here is that the U.S., you know, this comes from Britain. This is not a U.S. allegation. Britain, it comes from Britain. They found the evidence, but the U.S. backs it up. Well, it took a week for that story to collapse because now in the uh, Washington Post, just this weekend, uh, they, uh, they say this. The intelligence underlying the revelation about a Russian plot 
was collected and declassified by the U.S., according to multiple people familiar with the matter. <laughs> the, the Biden administration asked the British government, which vetted the intelligence and was confident in its accuracy, to publicly expose the Russian plotting, the people said. So basically, this is a classic case where the U.S. gets its British lackey to do its dirty work for them, similar to, remember, the Iraq dossier. Iraq is 45 yeah. minutes away from using a, a, a weapon of mass destruction. It's the ex- or the steel dossier, the exact same thing. But amazingly, this time it only took a week for the official story to collapse. And the point is another like, another incredible point on this is that the guy who they say that Russia is uh, planning to install is himself yeah. sanctioned by Russia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And went public. It <laughs> yeah. was it was just basically like what the fuck? Like I am. Yeah. I'm like persona non grata in Russia. Uh, yeah. I am not doing a coup. Well, that's just how deceptive <laughs> the Russians are. You see, their deception is in their veins. Um, but yeah, seriously though, I think that the only thing that made me think there might be something going on mostly is the troops in Belarus that uh, are supposedly training there right now. But I don't think, like I said, it would be a major invasion. I think it would be something along the lines of a minor incursion. And uh, it's definitely not something the U.S. needs to get involved with. So thanks for all of your help. Thanks, Andrew. And let thanks, me say, look, let me say this too. I mean, what goes unmentioned here is that there are constantly these major U.S. war games with their NATO allies on Russia's borders, right? Constantly. Oh, yeah. Does that mean that the U.S. – but does that mean that they're all planning to invade Russia? You know, so even like um, – it's just anything that Russia does here can be blown up and turned into some kind of nefarious plot. And you just always got to cons- consider the agenda have, behind it. We have precedent for this, too, which is funny because I, I never see this used as uh, I mean, obviously, it's never going to be used to contextualize propaganda. But but, you know, the the conflict in Georgia back in the mid 2000s. Right. Yeah. As, as similar contours, you have Saakashvili. Uh, who, you know, I believe is, is far less pragmatic than Zelensky, uh, being gassed, <laughs> being fucking gassed up by the uh, by the American government to the point yeah. where he launches an attack and the Russians come in and the Georgians get fucking rinsed and they lose some yeah. territory. And, you know, it's I mean, we've we've seen this happen before. Russia didn't roll tanks into Tbilisi, but they did take away a chunk of Georgia, you know? Yeah, they did. They did. They did. Yeah. Well, hopefully Zelensky is a little bit more pragmatic than uh, Czechoslovakia, who, I mean, that guy's, he's in jail. He's in prison right now, I think, right? I think he's, he's taken, look, he this is. what happens when you side with the U.S. Things do not go well for you. Like, he's a perfect example. He was humiliated. He lost a chunk of his country. Then he actually went to Ukraine and somehow became a Ukrainian politician, right? Kind of doing the U.S.'s bidding there. And now he's back in Georgia in prison. And of course, he spent some time living in Brooklyn. Yes, he lived in he lived in Williamsburg. He was hanging out in Williamsburg. He was eating uh, eight dollar cupcakes without a passport. You know, plotting his imminent return. Oh my god! Oh my god! Um, We'll go to the next caller. I just want to play. Do since we talked about Canada and how the um, the Ukrainian lobbyist has such a big influence and outsized influence in Canada. I want to play this one clip. This is so funny. This is on the CBC this weekend. And of course, the right wing have seized on this because why wouldn't they? Similar with like Russiagate, where it was a huge gift to Trump and the Republicans for Democrats to turn into insane, unhinged conspiracy theorists, seeing Russia behind everything. I see a similar thing happening now in Canada where you have this. So there's this protest of truckers, a convoy of of truckers, and they're protesting 
uh, vaccine policy or, or COVID policies and vaccine mandates. And this is what a CBC anchor had to say about that. It's, um, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, given Canada's support of Ukraine in this current crisis with Russia, it, I don't know if it's far-fetched to ask, but, but there is concern that Russian actors could be continuing to fuel things uh, as this as this protest grows, but perhaps even instigating it from from the outset. Oh my God! <laughs> you hear that, guys? Yeah, that was <laughs> Well, this has been this has been a drum that's been being beaten now for like quite a while. Is this uh, you know uh, Russian interference and, and interference from China? And it's really just, you know, every, you know, month there's some big op-ed about, you know, how there's there's this big you know, disinformation campaign by, you know, Russia or China or whatever. But, I mean, the really the fact is, is that the, the biggest foreign in- influence operation in Canada is, is the United States. Like, yes. And hands down, not yes. even, it ain't even close, you know, like... Yeah, our foreign minister basically, you know, gets called by the, the you know, Secretary of State and gets told what to do and what to say. Like it, it's, it's really. I mean, it's worse than I think, you know, it's ever been for Canada. Like we have almost no autonomy in our foreign affairs. Absolutely. And it's like when I see stuff like this, I'm thinking, is this what you know people, the choice people are going to be faced with? Like either the kind of like, you know, Trump like. Um, fake populism on the right that at least like pretends to care about working class concerns versus, you know, smug liberals in the media blaming every single dysfunction on Russia and saying Russia behind everything. That's the choice that people are being presented with. And it's just such a recipe for like right wing victories constantly, because who's going to like who who beyond an educated liberal is going to be is going to buy that Russia is somehow behind everything, whether it's Donald Trump's election or whether it's a trucker convoy or anything that's been blamed on Russia for the last, you know, five plus years. It's just, it's unbelievable. No, it's really sad. Um, and I mean, what's scary is, is this, this trucker convoy. So their, their GoFundMe that they started, which I think is almost up to $9 million. Um, they basically raise more money than every Canadian, you know, federal uh, party combined hmm. you know it, it's just yep. it's it's insane like and like the the people's party of canada which is this kind of you know far right um you know uh po- kind of populist but it's you know it's what i call like anti-politics like there's it's just like grievance politics there's no real policies um and they're becoming one of the fastest growing parties in canada and uh it's i mean it's pretty worrisome um to, to speak on Arlen's uh, to speak on Arlen's uh, theory of anti politics and the and the PPC, uh, my podcast covered uh, the lead up to the election when we dug down into the PPC candidates and it's very interesting they have a very big tent so uh, the rainbow of PPC candidates goes from uh, someone like Marcus Hecht who is a representative on uh, Vancouver Island where I grew up who is a classic uh, sort of European racist. Um, so there's that. But then on the far other end, you've got a guy named Nikula Das, whose entire life has been now devoted into testicular breathing. 
So he's a yoga oh, I... instructor. <laughs> he's a yoga instructor who is encouraging world peace through uh, breathing through your balls. So and, and that's this party. And they don't really have a platform, but they've been able to harness the same kind of energy that you find on Facebook to uh, sort of catalyze all these different people. And the media in Canada was just left caught, you know, caught with their pants down, basically, because they haven't been paying attention to how people organize online. Uh, there were a lot of articles in, like, the Globe and Mail and the National Post asking, uh, how can yoga moms be uh, demonstrating at the same protest with uh, people flying, like, conservative or, uh, you know, Confederate flags? So, mm, so yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's anti-politics. There's no, there's no real goal. It's just... All right, let's take the next caller and remember to unmute yourself when you come in the by hitting the microphone in the uh, bottom right. Hey, thanks for letting me up, Aaron. I uh, thought I was first in line, but must have seemed different. Um, I'd like to ask a question, Ari Gray Zone and things that happened this week. Are you willing to at all entertain a question on that on that front? Depends on the question, but feel free to ask it. Um, perfect. If if you don't want to answer it, we can just move yeah. on. To question about Ukraine. Um, you know, with with Ben Norton leaving, I know Max is down in Nicaragua and uh, uh, right now. But um, will there be any changes? Further changes with the gray zone going forward with with uh, Ben leaving, and you know, I know. Or I guess I don't know, but I suspect that a big part of the reason that Ben's leaving is Max's uh, stances on or stance on on vaccines and vaccine mandates. Um, and I know you and Max for sure have different views on that. Um, I believe from what from what I know. Um, will there be any changes? Are you staying with the gray zone? Um, I'm definitely staying. Uh, and look, it's, I wouldn't make assumptions about what is behind Ben leaving, you know, Ben and Max have worked together for a long time and sometimes it's time just to, to move on, you know, and, and go separate ways. That just happens, happens a lot. I've, I've, you know, had plenty of working relationships that were fruitful, but then at a certain point they come to an end. That's what I'll say about that. Um, and I, look, I, Ben has done such important work. I've learned so much from him. And uh, he'll continue to do great work. And uh, but as for the gray zone, look, it's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, things carry on and I'm not leaving and I'll continue to do everything I do. I have um, a lot of new reporting on the way about the OPCW scandal. There's so much more that hasn't that hasn't come out yet that I'll keep doing and I'm working on now and I'll continue to do pushback. And Max is continuing to do his thing. Max is um, he is in Nicaragua right now and he's always working on something you know, uh, important. And I think that is always insightful and incredibly well-researched and well-reported. So, you know, you can expect more of the same, but yeah, it, it does mean practically that moderate rebels, the podcast did it together is no more. And I love that show. I'll miss it. Um, that was one of my favorite podcasts and I thought they were a great duo. And by the way, it has an, Ben Norton is a musician and he wrote an incredible theme song for it, which, um, I will miss I'll miss hearing every single week. But look, it's just, you know, it it, it, it was just time for Ben to move on. And um, but it doesn't you know, I just you know, I, I wouldn't from the outside. It's 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 easy to 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 
you know, interpret things in certain ways, but I, but, but I would caution against doing that because it's just, th- th- there are many dynamics of play when people work together. I mean, you know, as anyone who's, who's worked together with someone closely for a long time can attest to, you know? Hey, my phone's about to die. Okay. Um, ah, well, it sounds like your phone just died, but thank you for, for that question. Um, okay. Let's bring in the next caller, Tim. So Tim, if you're there, you are in and remember to unmute yourself. There you go. Yeah. It only, it's only taken three, uh, three tries at this to actually figure that out. Um, Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so I, I don't know. Have you ever heard that quote from uh, Mike Tyson that everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face? <laughs> no, I haven't, but that's, that's good. It is good. Because uh, I had like three things at least to say uh, before I started listening to you guys. But a couple thoughts. Um, you know, I thought that uh, Dan's um, story about, you know, the, the train worker in Ukraine having his um, – his uh, salary cut by two thirds was really uh, kind of moving because actually, you know, you were saying they're basically Ukrainians are playing the role of bullet stoppers here. Um, and I would, and that's really the huge tragedy behind this is yeah. that whole country is being held, held hostage by Western um, political interests and and military interests and it's really important i think it was actually dan who highlighted this or i I can't remember who it was but just how the you know just as canadians because there's all all three of us are canadians talking about world politics here um that you know the ukrainians that came in the in the first wave or whatever were the people who gave us health care Right. And yes, yes, it's very, it's really hard to, it's, you know, I, it's funny because I, you know, my very smart son who I talk to a lot about these issues, um, you know, he has a visceral hatred of Ukrainians now because of, you know, the, the portion of Ukrainian population in this country who have been weaponized, um, it represent Ukrainians. And, you know, it's this delicate thing where, you know, um, there's, you, you cannot, um, you know, the basic, you never make essentialist claims about nations. You never make essentialist claims about races and so forth, but it's hard not to be appalled and angered and frustrated and want to, you know, like blame it on the nation. And you never do that yeah. because I, we all get used up. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that this is a really good point and I don't think this gets, uh, I don't think this gets enough play. I've been trying to do it more on, uh, my podcast last year. We did maybe five very long episodes, two of which I had Yasha Levine on about how Canada got here, you know, basically what happened to the diaspora, how it was captured by these imported fascists. Yep. But this year we've been, we've been really trying to focus on, it, like you were saying, it's important not as leftists who are anti-war or anti-imperialism to not go out there and say all Ukrainians are Nazis because it's totally ineffective and it's inaccurate. Like it, it is accurate to say that there is a huge uh, slice of Western Ukrainians who do subscribe to this frozen ideology of Bandera 
and uh, Yaroslav Stetsko and these collaborators. And, and it's good to be like accurate about that. You can be accurate about that without saying all Ukrainians are Nazis. Cause that's, uh, that's just not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, the, the trick is it's, you know, it's in their advantage to uh, paint this country in one way or the other. And the, I'll, I'll just say the two things I'm trying to remind myself of is I wanted to talk to you guys about two issues, which is a geopolitical overlay and an economic overlay. Um, because I actually think that might be really helpful in figuring this out because I've been obsessed with this, these issues for including Syria for a long time. And I think it might help some people to kind of like for me to kind of voice that stuff because it's simplifying because part of the problem with having these discussions, even with really, you know, well-informed people is that you, you know, you get lost in the discussion and you don't mention the things that are kind of clarifying about it. You know what I mean? Well, go ahead, Tim. I mean, say, you know, I say what you want. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the great ironies of this is, um, the the story that that Dan talked about with the with the rail worker in Ukraine is not happening in, in Belarus, right? And so Belarus has somehow like somehow managed to kind of um, sidestep the whole neoliberal kind of wrecking policy or or um, stripping asset stripping policy, and it's also the target of every human rights organization in the West, right? And it's not incidental that that's the case, right? It's also not incidental that Lukashenko is actually, I mean, what an idiot. He has to claim a 95% election result. But at the same time, no one's serious about Belarusian, Belarusian politics doubts that he got the majority of votes. And why did he get the majority of votes? Because all his people are employed, Right. I mean, not all his people, but you, you understand what I'm saying is that he didn't fall for the for whatever reasons, probably nefarious, probably to do with his own corruption, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is he sidestepped the um, the economic so-called reforms and his people, you know, the, the GDP, the the economic performance of that country is far better than Ukraine. Like, look at it. It's so astonishingly, um, I mean, this is a sad, this is the tragedy of Ukraine, right? They're like the anti-Czech, right? They're, there's no one to employ any of the people in Ukraine. Y- Volkswagen doesn't need any new Skoda, ex-Skoda workers or whatever. It's not 1989 anymore. And especially if you're planning to basically cut Russia off from the rest of Europe, they have, exactly zero reason to invest in Ukraine, which is exactly the thing you were talking about, which is, you know, about the fact that Ukraine economically is on the, on the ropes. I mean, like, like I said, they're hostages to this insane Western centric, no skin in the game, kind of easy, uh, uninformed kind of policies about these countries. And it's tragic. It's tragic for Ukrainians. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, you know, it gets to a bigger discussion of, um, you know, the ideas of what, what is liberal democracy and what does it bring? Because, like, 
you know, to think about Ukraine, you know, it's a, it's a democracy and they have elections, but, you know, the oligarchs like, uh, uh, Peter, I was listening to, to Dan's podcast last night with Peter and, you know, the oligarch Akbatov, who's the richest man in Ukraine, um, basically controls about 30% of Ukrainians, Ukraine's GDP, like one guy. So you're yeah. thinking like, sure, Ukraine is a democracy, but when you have one individual controlling that much of your country's GDP, like what, what does it really mean? Like how democratic is it? And I think this comes to the, the, the crux of the whole thing is that, you know, it's almost like Ukraine is, is a democracy in name only like the, the internal politics between the oligarchs and um, uh, are really what run that country. And the, the, the politicians are kind of just placeholders for the interest of these oligarchs. Um, so while it is a democracy, um, you know, you're right. Like, is it better than an autocratic Belarus where, you know, Be- Belarusians, I imagine, have far less freedoms uh, than, you know, especially someone like me in Canada. But, you know, they do have jobs and they do have, you know, state, I imagine state run housing and, and all that. So, you know, it's, it's a bigger question of like, what, you know, what is liberal democracy under neoliberalism? You know, I don't know anything about Belarus, except, but I do know that it was revealed last year that the National Endowment for Democracy, which is the basically a regime change arm of the U.S. government, heavily linked to the CIA, was heavily involved there. Uh, Carl Gershman, who was for a long time the president of the NED, um, and he was the guy who wrote an article in 2013 in the Washington Post calling Ukraine, quote, the biggest prize, unquote, in Washington's uh, bid to basically <laughs> uh, pry for, uh, former Soviet states into the uh, U.S.-led orbit. Carl Gershwin was on this call with some activists from Belarus who the U.S. was supporting, and he basically admitted that the U.S. was playing a key role in supporting uh, the opposition movement in Ukraine. And that's just like, you know, actually, let me play a clip of it here. I have it here. And we have four institutes, and I think um, all of them are active in Belarus. Two of them, I think, you know well because they work very, very closely with you and your team and uh, the Coordination Council, and that's NDI and uh, IRI, uh, our two party institutes. And uh, they're under the net umbrella, and we fund um, their work, uh, you know, that uh, works on uh, strengthening parties and their uh, messaging, their public outreach, their communications, and I know that they're working with you and your team uh, very, very closely. And we also have um, a business institute that's associated with our Chamber of Commerce in the United States, the Center for International Private Enterprise, uh, mm-hmm. that we have funded to, uh, to work with the uh, private sector uh, in Belarus to set a vision and a uh, a framework for a post Lukashenko uh, a private uh, economic <laughs> recovery uh, of the country, and we have a labor yeah. institute, a trade, a trade union yeah. institute. So, uh, in, in addition to these four institutes and our labor institute, which supports the independent unions in uh, Belarus, we also make grants directly to uh, organizations in Belarus and have done so for a very, very long time. So that's a playbook, right? You know, in the under the guise of supporting unions and 
you know, uh, democracy in, in Belarus. It's a, the U.S. just basically puts its tentacles into the organs of the country with the aim of bringing it into the U.S. neoliberal order. And, of course, you know, if they were to succeed, then, of course, Belarus would be subject to all the, you know, neoliberal reforms that were that were that were imposed on, on Ukraine to great damage, you know, pension cuts, energy subsidy cuts, all these things. I yeah. wanted to. Oh, Dan, what was oh, the term that that uh, Peter had for all the NGO people in Ukraine? What's the name? Oh, yeah, it's I, I forget, but it's a it's a Ukraine grant eaters. That's what he, in Ukrainian. I forget the Ukrainian, but uh, Peter was saying that the name for those people are grant eaters. Carpet baggers. <laughs> yeah, they just devour grants. Right. I wanted to. So it's like the whole whole part of the the you know the the. Basically, economy, and it, I, you know, I guess really Afghanistan is is a really tragic example of that, where their entire economy was basically, uh, you know, supported by you know this these foreign NGO and NGO money, um, which of course the economy just collapses when all that money disappears. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just before I forget, I wanted to bring up something that had to do with Arlen, what you were talking about, uh, about like, what does neoliberalism bring? What does, you know, liberal democracy when it's imposed on a country bring and, and how it relates to oligarchs. Uh, so there's an oligarch, uh, famous oligarch in Ukraine named Kolomoisky, who, uh, used to be the, I believe the governor of, uh, 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 like in the East, he uh, amassed a huge fortune, and he is one of the chief funders, if not the chief funder, of Azov Battalion. So he's this big player in Ukrainian domestic politics. He essentially has like a private army. Uh, he's got loads of capital. And in a bizarre example of economic blowback, or I guess you could call it neoliberal political blowback, Koylevoisky has become the biggest commercial landlord in Cleveland, Ohio. So Cleveland, uh, you know, famously on the downturn for decades, Koylemyski waltzes in with these absconded IMF money, uh, with huge withdrawals from the National Bank, and just starts buying up commercial real estate in Cleveland. And I read this incredible article about it, essentially saying, interviewing local, municipal, uh, and state officials asking how could this have happened you know how does this guy now have a monopoly and they're saying well you know our democratic institutions here are totally corrupt and weakened so it's almost like the ukrainization of america like this this strange sort of mirroring globe but can i just suggest that there's a simple thing going on here it there's it's an iron law that anything used in the provinces comes back to the the imperial center, right? If it's useful, if it's useful in Vietnam, if it's useful in uh, Indonesia, if it's useful in whatever, yeah, eventually it'll be it'll be imposed on us. And you know, it's it's a horrifying um, realization when you realize that we're not just talking about foreign policy. This is where we're headed, right? Oh yeah, I mean, in, in Canada, one of the new developments is um, so we're having these uh, ind- indigenous uh, blockades of like pipeline projects that are running through unceded territory, and uh, 
one of uh, so so there's these injunctions that are are put by the crown by the state um, to remove these uh, um, blockades, and so one of them recently, uh, so the the court, uh, you know, the people who are arrested, uh, the court refused to press charges, but what the court did is now passed it on to the corporation, uh, like one of these pipeline corporations, and said, okay, well, we're not going to press charges, but now you, you know, if you want to press charges, you can. So it's kind of like the similar situation to, to Stephen Donzinger, where now the the Canadian crown, the Canadian state is allowing corporations to start uh, suing and pressing charges against uh, citizens for, you know, uh, uh, Civil disobedience. Which is I think terrifying. I think that was no, it is, and but I think it was actually struck down recently because I followed Stephen Don Donzinger and he said something like that. But am I, does anyone yeah. know? I don't, I I think it, it it was pretty recent that this happened, so I haven't seen anything since. But um, yeah, I'd like to follow up more on that because just the fact that the that the crown allowed for. To, to, to pass it down to the corp, to the corporation to be, to be able to pursue charges to me was just was crazy like yeah it's know, mind blowing it's and it's just this kind of like ultimate neoliberalism where you know um, it's like lawfare where where laws are not you know um, whatever something to to kind of um, manipulate yeah it's it's just designed to to, to for corporations and for these multinationals to basically. Um, uh, carry out their own uh, will on the people. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it was really disturbing. So uh, to me, that's that's seeing this this kind of thing where it's it's just kind of free for all for multinationals now. Um, no matter where you are, if you're in the imperial center or if you're on the periphery. Yeah, I mean for sure the the whole prosecution of Lula is the most outrageous example of this, right? Um, you know, the fact that you could turn Brazil into uh, a neo-fascist colony again so easily based on, uh, you know, some legal intrigue in a small Cutiba, the, the small Brazilian town, uh, is amazing. And then this, you know, the, the guy who's in charge of it in the State Department brags about it in a lecture in Washington, D.C., you know. It's, it's it's a crazy situation, yeah. It is indeed. Um, well, I think we should start to wrap. Um, Dan and Arlen, I really appreciate you guys' time and joining us. If there's anything more you want to say, and and uh, and also be sure to tell us about um, how we can find you, how we can follow your work. Yeah, I I I just want to give one small anecdote, um, if that's okay, before we go, because I yeah. think it's pertinent to the Canadian the Canadian listeners. So I want to remind everybody when you're reading news. Uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know if this crowd is reading mainstream news on Ukraine. You're probably <laughs> smarter than that. Um, but when you're reading it, I think it's important to uh, remember this little anecdote. So Global News a couple of days ago puts out this very scary article. The headline: Canada. Criticized. Canada criticized for soft, tentative language amid Ukrainian crisis. So <laughs> this, I, I saw this and I kind of perked up and I was like, oh, who's doing the criticizing? Well, it turns out it's one guy, one Ukrainian-Canadian guy who happens to work for the Atlantic Council. Yeah. Uh, 
His name is Michael uh, Borisikiv, and uh, he works for the Atlantic Council in the capacity of advising them on Ukraine. He's part of this right-wing Canadian diaspora, and, uh, you know, he is the only source in this article. No one else is interviewed. So, you know, he he basically says, uh, saying that, you know, the State Department here, the, the Foreign Affairs Minister saying that we are deeply concerned doesn't cut it. You know, we need to send weapons. Uh, we need to really put our foot down. So that got me thinking, like, who is this guy? And, you know, what, what are his political beliefs? And it just took a few seconds to find him speaking at a a uh, conference of Ukrainian-Canadian journalists held in Kiev. And this kind of takes us back to our original point. Um, so this is him talking about Zelensky. He says at, the, at this conference in 2019, he says the election that was, was this election was Petro Poroshenko's to lose, but he became tone deaf. He came across as angry. Um, at the same time, Mr. Borachev acknowledged that, quote, a lot of people probably voted for that TV person. Whether we like it or not, we have to deal with Zelensky. So there you have it, you know. Like, this guy is telling Canadians what we should be thinking about Ukraine. And this guy is also reflective of this fucking State Department thing where they're like, well, Zelensky's not playing ball. He's not our guy. He's not the real president of Ukraine. It's Poroshenko, right? And this is a view that is reflected in the right-wing diaspora here who long for like a greater Galicia and an ethnically mm. pure Ukraine and the State Department who long to turn Ukraine into a neoliberal shithole. Like, so I just thought that was funny. Um, yeah, it's good, and it's good know, to note too that um, one of the biggest sponsors of the Atlantic Council is the richest man in Ukraine, Akhmatov. So That's correct. Yes, of course. <laughs> so yeah. it all comes full circle. It's It's, you know, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And again, it just reminds me of Syria where you have, you know, 10 years ago, February 2012, Jake Sullivan, who's now the National Security Advisor. Back then, he's working for Hillary Clinton at the State Department, and he writes her uh, a note about Syria. And he says to her, just very simply, Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And that is who the U.S. always finds itself in alliance with. It's these right wing <laughs> fascists, because who else is willing to destroy their country? just to uh, overthrow a government that is um, not obedient to U.S. interests. It's, you only can find people who are on the you know, extremes willing to do that. And again and again and again, whether it's Ukraine or Syria or whether it's Venezuela, it's always people who are on the far right. Yeah, um, it's true. Arlen, Arlen, any final words you want to say? Um. The only thing I find really funny is uh, this week was Victoria Newland, um, how she made a statement asking uh, China to help the United States sort out its issues in Ukraine, uh, which is just super funny after, you know, the amount of belligerence between the United States and uh, and China. Um, I'd like to read this, too. Of So... Uh, Newland made the statement to then Anthony Blinken um, spoke with uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, and from the readout uh, from the uh, Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, it says, uh, Blinken briefed Yang Yi on the U.S. position on the Ukrainian issue. Among others, Wang Yi said to solve the Ukrainian issue, it is still necessary to return to the new Minsk Agreement. 
The new MITS agreement, endorsed by the UN Security Council, is a basic political document recognized by all parties and should be imp implemented earnestly. China will support any effort that conforms to the direction and spirit of this agreement. At the same time, we call on all parties to remain calm and refer refrain from inflaming tensions or hyping up the crisis. Wang Yi stressed, the security of one country should not be at the expense of the security of others, and regional security should not be guaranteed by strengthening or even expanding military blocks. Today, in the 21st century, all parties should completely abandon the Cold War mentality and form a balanced, effective, and sustainable European security mechanism through negotiations, with Russia's legitimate security concerns being taken seriously and addressed. Uh, so, yeah. Sounds like commie bullshit. <laughs> But it's just, yeah, I mean, it sounds like definitely China is done with the U.S.'s bullshit as well. So I wasn't sure what Newland was really thinking, um, what China would be saying, but uh, yeah. China is definitely supporting uh, Russia's position on this, on the Ukraine. Yeah, which is, which is I got to say, like, that's another factor here is ironic is that who would have thought that... Uh, all of this anti-Russian uh, sort of propaganda pushed forward by basically by the loss of uh, Hillary Clinton in the election, this, this Russian yes. gate tidal wave uh, would have resulted in the one thing they didn't want to have happen, which is Russia and China forming a security block. <laughs> like, yes. Great, yes. Yeah. great yes. job. That's a great point. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Well, Not that's the... how empires fall, right? The, the, if you're an empire, there's just a built-in hubris and arrogance that will inevitably lead to your decline. It just, it's just, it's almost, it's a law of history. You know, I think, I think Marx kind of called this, that this, this is just how, how it inevitably has to go because to be the kind of power that you are, there's just, it, there's not, um, you have to be irrational and it will result in you doing things that actually undermine your own power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right, guys, listen, uh, Dan and Arlen, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to join us. This was great. I, I am going to stick around and take a couple more calls because I don't want to leave people hanging. But I've Dan and Arlen, you guys have spent a lot of time with us, and I don't want to take up your day. So Dan Bachner is a musician with Wolf Parade and Operators. You can find him on Twitter at, at Dan Bachner. His podcast is called The Bottleman on Patreon. It's Da Bottleman, D-A Bottleman. And he's all, his website is wolfparade.com, and I'll, I'll link to all this in the show notes. Arlen Thompson, also with Wolf Parade. On Twitter, he is uh, le underscore petit underscore trek, also wolfparade.com, and his band Anunnaki. Dan and Arlen, thank Great. you guys. Thanks, Aaron. Good thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Yep. Bye. And Tim, thank you for your call. I will bring in Kushin now as the next caller. Hello, good afternoon, Aaron. Are you able to hear me? I can hear you, yes. Great. Uh, well, first of all, that's kind of you to stick around and continue taking questions and uh, engaging in dialogue. I appreciate that gesture. Of um, course, of course, yeah. So you mentioned roughly uh, around five minutes into today's episode that CNN deleted a story about the Biden Zelensky call, if I'm not mistaken. And I know you've shared before about your time with uh, MSNBC journalist Mehdi Hassan uh, via September 16, 2020 tweet that, quote, my experience was him cutting me off repeatedly to try to score a point, saying he didn't care about the facts I had to offer 
and editing out the parts that made him look silly, end quote. And so I noticed there's a similarly deleted segment, I believe, of episode eight of your call-in program. Now, one that I was very much looking forward to listening. Correct. I was wondering, uh, as a matter of journalistic, uh, journalistic integrity, you were planning yes. to reinsert that segment into the video in order to provide your listeners some vital context for a more fair understanding of other connecting parts of that episode. Uh, well, listen, Kusha, um, it's it's gone. That that part of the episode which I deleted is is gone. And and for people who didn't catch it, uh, Kusha entered the episode, the last one we did with my dad, Gabor Mate. And um, I look with Colin, you have the option afterwards to make edits to the, the episode, and I did delete your part of it because I didn't think it was relevant to. The topic. I was doing that show for Gabor's audience and giving them a chance to interact with him and ask him questions about his work. And you wanted to ask about a topic that we've talked about many times on this show, which is, you know, you have strong objections to me interviewing a certain Iranian professor, um, Mohammed Morandi. You're Iranian yourself, and I know that your family has suffered under the Iranian government. And you wanted to ask him about that, and I and I just didn't think it was uh sort of relevant to the topic and he didn't want to answer it either so i felt as if it just kind of distracted from the message of the show which is for gabor to hear from his audience and and to and for them to engage with him about his work and and issues in their own lives and that's what he did and i thought that was wonderful and i didn't feel as if your part of it you know fit in with that i i think you're totally entitled to have your your questions and your particular interest that you want to have discussed, but I didn't think um, it was, um, uh, it didn't just feel right to leave that in because it just, to me, it was out of place. So I did cut it and it, it's gone. It, it will not be returned. So if I may just have some response to that. First, I would say there are other segments of the episode that immediately uh, respond to what I said there, right? And so if you have segments that respond to what I say in a critiquing manner, in a negative fashion, and you don't have the actual scene, how could any of your listeners get a fair sense to judge it with their own ears about what I said? And second, okay, so I, I, hold on a second. I think there's one, you're right. There, I'm remembering now, and I, I, I there forgot are this certain, at the time. I, there are multiple, if you want uh, I, I believe I believe, there's, I believe there's one, but I, actually what I believe happens, and that's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but someone questions your motives, and I actually inter- Okay, and I intervened. And I said I'm not questioning anyone's motives. People have the right to share what they I want to say. So, you know, I, I I'm I happy to go. So hold on, I'm happy to go and actually delete that because it just it won't make actual narrative sense for someone um, listening to the episode and they'll and that that yeah. will seem out of place. So that's a yeah. fair point to raise. And so I I, I will go back and take that that that, that little yes. exchange out. I want to I want to give you credit as well for what you said there because that's very kind of you not to question my concerns and motivations. Because as you know, I've told you before, my father was supposed to be executed by the Islamic Republic. And I said, if I could just give a little more details, because you've touched on it. He had a book thrown at him by a mullah. I'm going to just give you some more details about that. It was not just like one soft cover book or something like that. It was a trial that was carried out to him because he was one like deviant slash apostate from Islam, as they perceived. And the book was thrown at his face very firmly in a sham trial right above his eyebrow just a few inches from his eye. He was bleeding profusely. He had to clean it with antiseptic is all they had there. And if it was just a few inches uh, uh, different, it would have hit his eye and blinded him. Further, further. That happened shortly before he was beaten for like seven to ten minutes in front of his one of his dear sisters out in the street by his neighbors 
who later, many of whom became proto-paramilitary actors of something called the Basij, which is the Islamic Republic's armed forces, one such. It's one okay, arm Kusha, of Islam. I Kusha, Kusha, as I said, I really get, and I really hope you hear me, I really get your family has suffered under the Iranian government. I really get it. And I, I don't make, make light of that. My, my interest, though, is in keeping the show um, topical and focused for sure. everybody and, and, and not, sure. being, not being bogged. You know, like, and we have spent time talking about your concerns before, but I have to think about you know, addressing everyone's concerns. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the context of a show where the guest is a author and doctor whose focus is you know, trauma work and mm -hmm. personal healing, you were asking him to make a political judgment about a certain guest who I've had on, on my show who he probably has no even idea about. So it, I just didn't think that it was at the time appropriate to go there and that is that is why i cut it sure and um so yeah but i understand that but for one if i will make that judgment but then i also have topical concerns like if you notice every time you have an episode i try my best to have a question or opening that pertains to what the title of your episode is or what the description is and try to connect to other points and so that's why i wanted to use your you try to <laughs> you try to connect it to points that are a particular concern to you and that's your right but um and and but I you have to understand that I have I have other concerns too, and I can't just spend ample time being focused solely on yours. But I, I do also want to give you the space to express whatever concerns you and, have. And that's kind of you. And also that's why I try to respond to areas that are your, as you've said before, your primary focus. So Syria Gate, uh, sorry, Syria and Russia Gate, those are areas of your primary focus. And given that this episode is about Russia and Ukraine and the escalation of war put out by the U.S. media, I know you've spoken on that. And there is a lot of fear mongering. And of course, the Republican establishment does so, the um, Democratic establishment does so, they do with China, Russia, there's a convergence in many of them on it. This is all true. And so with that being the case, I'm really curious to know, because what you talk about very often is you say, look, it's not my place to judge Assad or to concern myself with his actions. And you say, keyword, keyword, in response to foreign aggression, right? That's what you say. You say, it's not my place. Does that mean, are you saying, because I want to be very clear about drawing out an example of this, and not just with what happened through uh, an ally of the United States, but also an enemy government of the United States. So, for instance, Bashar Kusha, Kusha, what's your Kusha, what's your question? What, okay, what's your question? Qasem Soleimani, the director of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, he went directly to Vladimir Putin in July 2015 to emphasize the request to coordinate planning for Russian involvement in the Islamic Republic's effort to preserve its precious Mediterranean ally and butcher, Bashar al-Assad, and after which Russia started sending in tanks, fighters, jets, troops, and artillery. And you had a uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps leader, Mahmoud Chabarri, What's your question? Kusha, what's your question? My question is, does he have the right, does any government have the right to invite in others, even if they're butchers? And are there cases you think that no uh, a murderous government that's not popularly supported by the people, they don't necessarily, it's not about their right to do so. Like, for instance, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Invite okay, 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 Gulf okay. War One. I think I got the question. Does Iran have the right to invite uh, Russia does into Syria? Syria? The, no, yeah. no. Does Syria have the right to invite Russia or Iran into Syria? Yes, because Syria is the government. And by the way, the authority on this topic, in my view, is John Kerry. I, if you watch my show, Pushback, you'll see me play this clip all the time where Kerry, he was talking to some Syrian opposition activists in September 2016. 
And he talked about the reason Russia came into Syria. And he says Russia came into Syria because they, quote, didn't want a Daesh government, Daesh being ISIS. Okay? Yes, ISIS. And, and, Kerry, and, Kerry, and Kerry also says the reason there was a risk of an ISIS government is because the U.S. was sitting back and watching. And what he explains is that the U.S. was basically using ISIS's advance on Damascus as leverage mm-hmm. to effect mm-hmm. regime change. And the hopes mm-hmm. that the the prospect of an ISIS government would force Assad to negotiate his way out of power mm-hmm. and get the U.S. to install the puppet that it wanted to install. That's what John. Mm-hmm. That's what John yes. Kerry said. I know. So that is that is why Russia came in, and Iran does not have the right to ask Russia to come into Syria, but Syria has the right to ask Russia to come into Syria, okay. and Syria did ask Russia to come in. So that's my answer to your question. Uh, so I see that example, but it, I don't think, as you said before, when you were talking about the Hama massacre to me, I don't think that's the full story. Yes, the United States and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, they all funded ISIS and Al-Qaeda, Jaysh al-Islam, Jabal al-Nusra. That's all true. They all funded and armed them and backed them. But Assad also opportunistically used them. As- ISIS and these terrorist groups were just vicious bulldogs that they all used opportunistically. There's not necessarily like a logical sense about, oh, their timing of using. They all saw them as something they could use. In the early stages of the Syrian civil war, when it was still a more broad uprising, Assad was dispersing the terrorists into the crowds. He released them, they would go in, and he was benefiting from exploiting the divide and conquer situation I, that arose. I, no, he no, used no, them. no. I don't know. You contest those facts? You contest the facts there? I, hold on. Yeah, yes, I do. Here's what I think there's evidence for. When the Iraq war broke out, Assad definitely let sectarian insurgents go into Iraq. He absolutely did. That's that's pretty well established. I think you can explain what he did, though, from a point of view of geopolitical calculus. And actually, James Jeffrey was a former U.S. special envoy. He said basically Assad's motive was he was worried that the U.S. after Iraq was going to come to Damascus next. So allowing insurgents to go over across the border into Iraq from Syria was a good way to keep the U.S. bogged down in, in Iraq and not coming into Damascus. And given what happened in later years, I think that proved to be a uh, a prescient move because, of course, the U.S. did come for Assad with, with regime change. And it's true that early on, Assad did release a lot of prisoners, including sectarian insurgents and people who joined the insurgency. But again, that was a key demand of the opposition and the U.S. And he was trying to avoid, I think, a a, a worse war. So that is my response to those two points. And... I want to get to the next callers, Kusha, but uh, but uh, but uh, so make any final point you want to make. Sure. Well, I'm saying Assad, just like the United States, was an opportunist without any clear values other than to maintain power. His mother told him you have to crush the opposition, just like his uncle Rifat did, who Assad recently let back into Syria after Rifat was in Europe for some time. Mm-hmm. And his brother Maher was personally shooting into the crowds, into the uh, innocent civilians, and having soldiers shoot at their heads and their hearts. And further, I'm going to conclude on this. Mahmoud Shahar Baghi, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commander, said on Islamic Republic's state-run news program, and I have the tweet for it, that ISIS wasn't even present yet when the Islamic Republic intervened. And there's a transcription in English of it. And the sole mission, the sole, he says, the sole mission of the Islamic Republic was to keep Assad in power. Please contest that fact if you want, because I have the video. Well, there, but um, okay, but again, okay, you can say you can say ISIS maybe formally wasn't there under the name, but Al Nusra was there, and Al Nusra uh, emerged out of a split in ISIS. And the point of keeping Assad in power was again against who? 
he wasn't facing a revolution of moderate rebels and all the other fictions. As the Defense Intelligence Agency admitted in 2012, and everybody knows, I just recently did an interview on pushback with a former CIA analyst named David McCloskey, who also admitted the prime engine of the insurgency in Syria were sectarian insurgents, uh, Sunni sectarian insurgents, uh, a.k.a. al-Nusra and their allies. That's who Assad was facing. And, of course, in the process, many atrocities were committed. But the basic reality was that this was a, a dirty war. And in dirty wars, horrible things happen. And so that's why my position is we shouldn't have dirty wars. We shouldn't be sending in tens of thousands of weapons into Syria, and we shouldn't be arming sectarian death squads. It's a pretty simple, simple position. doesn't mean I support Assad. I'm grateful personally. I don't live under a government like the Syrian government because I know people like me, leftists, have been hurt under the Syrian government, have been targeted. But that I, that does not translate to whitewashing and ignoring the reality that Assad was fighting a war he didn't start. He was fighting a Contra army armed by some of the worst dictatorships in the world, including Saudi Arabia and Qatar, along with the biggest power in the world, the U.S., in which they had no right to do. And let's leave it there for today, Kusha. We've we've gone over these points before, and I want to get to the next callers. Sure. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. you affording me the opportunity. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Hey, my phone died before I was outside and couldn't plug in. Yeah. Appreciate you letting me back up. Um, no and again... I know these kind of issues that I asked you about first are interpersonal and and just as a viewer and a, a somebody that respects and loves the gray zone. Um, I hope you don't take offense in me asking the question that I did. About- no, of course, of course, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. if I was a if I was a gray zone fan and I saw such a key member leave, I, of course, I'd have I'd have concerns. I totally get it. Cool. I appreciate that. Um, one other like side point. I respected Kusha before, but I, I think his line of questioning today is a little uh, <clears throat> uh, questionable. But um, <clears throat> I've complimented him before and, and you for accepting people that critique uh, your thoughts and the way you think see things. And I think everybody should have that. But you know, there's a point where it becomes, but anyway, yeah. Well, look, that, 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 <laughs> that, 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 that's between me and Kusha, and I welcome I welcome him asking the questions that he wants to ask, and that's what this platform is for. So we don't need to, yeah, you know, to, to uh, make comments about that. It's it, it's totally fair to ask the questions that he wants to ask. Fair enough. Um, so you know this this Ukraine escalation is really interesting and and quite frightening, honestly. Um, and I learned quite a bit today from you and your guests that I didn't know before. Um, you know, it seems to me that any time there's these like escalations, it, it kind of mirrors other presidents, uh, previous presidents kind of trying to escalate war because it, it usually boosts their approval ratings. And do you put anything into that? Is that an actual aspect of this? I mean, is Biden scared of his approval rating? And is that part of why this escalation is happening at this time? Yeah, when, that's a good question. It's a good question. When there's certainly, been like, yeah, go ahead. Certainly in Britain, where Boris Johnson is facing all kinds of scandals, like 
partying during COVID. I definitely think that's a factor there. I mean, it's, it just seems so transparently obvious. And yet, in terms of the Democrats at home, what have they gotten done? Nothing. Build Back Better failed. So what better thing to do than to manufacture a war crisis? So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a factor, but I don't think it's the main factor because I just think this is this, look, what's happening now with Ukraine. It's the it's the culmination of just years of the U.S. getting involved in a really dangerous game on Russia's borders and doubling down on it. Like Russia Gate was a way to kind of double down on what was going on in Ukraine, where, you know, Trump was calling for diplomacy with Russia and he was questioning NATO. And so. You know, accusing him of being a Russian agent and launching this big investigation was an attempt to basically constrain him to the extent that he was going to be serious about what he was saying. And I'm not saying he was going to be serious because he basically was just a a salesperson, uh, a con man who, you know, said whatever he thought would get him would get him votes and would appeal to people. And at the time, there was a sort of growing distaste for foreign interventions like in uh, Syria and Libya and these ma- massive foreign, you know, projects like Ukraine, the, the coup there. But um, so I, I, I'm sure domestic considerations are a part of it. But also, I just think it's just it's it's hegemony. And as I point out in this article that I published this week at Substack, it's it's hegemony and it's war profiteering. You know, Ukraine is very profitable for the arms industry and the expansion of NATO itself is just a it's like such a priority for the arms industry, there's been so much investment in it. And so I think, you know, people who are, who have been a part of this policy for a long time, which is the people in the Biden administration, they're going to just keep doubling down. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting that Biden first kind of said that he was willing to let some Russian aggression go. And then again, kind of like we saw with the pullout in Afghanistan uh, back in August or September, whenever that was, um, the media piled on to him and made him kind of, I think that drone strike that killed 10 civilians, including a gentleman who is an aid worker for charities in America. Um, you know, he, he changes course or reacts to the media. How do we, you know, what's the best way to react to that or to, to view that and why, why does why does Biden always react in a or why does the media always push Biden to react in a more conservative or more warlike hawkish uh, direction? Well, the media just always reflect reflexively takes the hawkish hawkish position. And I think there's like there's all kinds of different factors. I mean, you know, the media is aligned with the military industrial complex that military industrial complex always just wants war and wants to push hegemony. And there's also, I think, a psychological factor. Like, all these people, none of them ever fight in wars. Their kids don't fight in wars. And I think there's just this kind of um, weird feeling of inadequacy and, and weakness, and they get to feel tough by sending other people's kids off to die and by making other people suffer. If you're If you identify with being a global hegemon, and you profit off of being global, a global hegemon to rationalize that self in your mind is you have to look at the rest of the world as these mortal threats and actually as, as lesser people who deserve to suffer. That's why I read that article before about, you know, in the times about imposing U.S. sanctions on Russia and how it's widely acknowledged that this will cause massive deprivations for average Russians. But you have all these sadists in, in D.C. acting as bureaucrats who, 
you know, are salivating at this prospect? And under what conditions would a human being salivate and be excited at the prospect of making average people suffer? And it's if you have an exceptionalist view of the world, and I guess you kind of have to have that exceptionalist view of the world to justify it to yourself, to like for everything to make sense, you know? So it's a combination, I think, of, of all those factors. And it all, it all comes back to sadism. They all just, they all relish the thought of sadism and they all think that being tough and muscular, that's a very popular term, right? Muscular. <laughs> like, 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 Brit, like Britain, like when Britain came out and accused Russia of this coup plot that we talked about earlier, the New York Times had a headline calling them muscular. Britain's taking a more muscular role. That's when you're actually being a coward and you're lying about other countries in a bid to drum up war and make things worse for people, then you get to feel tough. Right. Exactly. Hey, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, Chelsea Clinton thinks you're a, a grifter. I know you care about her opinion. So um, as a writer on Substack, she... Oh, she calls. Yeah, right. Yes. The Clintons are accusing <laughs> other people of being grifters. People like the Clintons who speak to Wall Street for half a million dollars for 30 minutes of their time. They're calling other people grifters. Yeah. Okay. No, no. I mean, that's, you know, I, part of me has some sympathy for Chelsea because that's she didn't choose who her parents are, but she has chosen. Um, she has you know, chosen to be a grifter. She's done, though. She's chosen to be a grifter. Yeah. yeah. To have a no pay job in an NBC for $600,000 a year. But um, anyway, I, I, hey, thanks yeah, for your I gotta, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. And Tim, I'll All take right. your call before, and then we're going to wrap, but let me just announce one thing. Katie Halper, who's in the room, wanted me to say that tomorrow on useful idiots, we're going to be reacting to the latest Ukraine, Russia news and all the latest clips on today's Sunday news shows, which I'm sure were full of, a lot of uh, fun and are always really fun to make light of. So that's tomorrow morning on Useful Idiots. It's called Monday Morning, where we watch the Sunday news shows if you don't have to. And it's at YouTube and it's at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, youtube.com slash Useful Idiots. And Tim, you are the next and last caller. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Hey. So, uh, just a suggestion. Okay. Is there a sub chat room where Kusha and I can have this out without completely uh, dis- derailing the conversation? What do you think? Well, look, if you have any issues or questions for Kusha, you can find just message him on um, yeah, yeah on Colin, and you guys can have a respectful chat. But in terms of Turning uh, what one caller says into grounds for a wider argument, I, I don't want to do that at all. He he has every right to say what he wants to say, and uh, I welcome it. That's what this that's what this platform is all about. The whole point to do, Colin, is for me is to engage with you know people who 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 want to talk to me, and um, whether that's positive feedback or criticisms, and you know uh, it's just, it's totally fair. So. Um, but if you want to message each other, you're totally free to do that. There's a there's a function to do that. You just click on someone's profile and you can message them. But uh, inter- you know, there's there's no need for any kind of pu- uh, public adjudication of of me and Kusha's exchange. That is a very smart comment. Thank you. Or <laughs> bless you, sir. Uh, well, hey, thank you, Tim. Thank you, and thanks everybody for for tuning in. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. And it's always great to engage with people. 
And I'll be back this week with more AM Live. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Bye, everybody.